Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Dope Black Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Dope Black Dads Podcast. I am your host, Lewis Howell, and I am joined by an amazing guest. Genuinely, I was just saying before we hit record how excited I am to be able to explore this particular topic with this guest because who I have with me today is Dr. Nanika Kaur, who is a clinical psychologist and respectful parenting therapist at Brooklyn Parent Therapy. She helps overwhelmed parents hear a kinder inner voice and experience more mutually respectful interactions with their children. Her podcast gives practical advice, tips, and tricks to add more balance, perspective, and fun into your family's busy life. Dr. Nanika, thank you so much for joining us. How are you this, this, this fine day? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Um, no, you're more than welcome. I very nearly said this evening and then realized that we're in two different parts of the world and my time is not your time. So as much as this evening for me, it's definitely not evening for you. So I had to switch today. Do you know what I'm saying? But anyway, here we are. So we're going to be exploring, you know, this, this, to be honest with you, Dave, the, the suggestion was that we explore parenting and mental health, but actually really what we're talking about is the role that identity plays within parenting, which is exciting. And I think I do want to get into a little bit about your career and your background as it relates to parenting therapy. But personally, I think we should dive straight into talking a bit about the series that you recently ran. Um, so this is all about the Project Parenthood series, which of course is part of a podcast that you contribute to as well as many other contributors to that particular podcast. So tell us a bit more about the broader podcast brand then, of course, your contributions around Project Parenthood and the mini-series that you man ran most recently for the U.S.'s Black History Month. Yes. Um, well, Quick and Dirty Tips is, a, um, is an overarching podcast network, of which Project Parenthood is one of the podcasts. And um, Project Parenthood, I am the host of that uh, particular podcast. And as you said, I offer tips for parents and Quick and Dirty Tips in general just offers lots of tips on lots of different subjects and lots of different podcasts. Mine is about parenting. Um, and because I work with parents in my private practice, um, it's nice to be able to have a platform where I can talk about various topics that not only come up in, in my practice, but also just in my life and you know other parents that I know personally, um, the kinds of things that come up in those conversations. And it's nice to have 
sort of a, a library of deep dives that I do into subjects that often come up in my practice with parents that I work with. Um, you asked, yeah, you were asking about um, the podcast the in general. The, 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 that's right, the series that I did. Um, so in for the U.S.'s Black History Month, I did four podcasts that were all interviews with uh, different different uh, clinicians. Um, yes, they were all clinicians. Um, and they were all about raising multiracial black children, um, children who identify um, solely as black or children who identify as multiracial and part of their identity as black identity. Um, the first one we did was about white parents who raise black children, adoptive parents, and things that they need to keep in mind um, in terms of um, helping to develop their children's racial identity. Um, another one I did was about having the talk, um, the talk about what children might experience being a black person in the world and the things that might um, they might sort of preparing them for the the negativity that might come their way and also preparing them to be proud of who they are in spite of that. Um, and we did another one about multiracial children, raising multiracial children who um, have m multiple identities and uh, the importance of not locking them into just one identity and celebrating all of their identities. Um, and then finally, we did one about autism. Uh, autism in the black community and and ways to advocate for your child and um, some of the barriers um, people with autism or parents of children with autism face in getting their children their black children care this is powerful that is such, look, the, the the span the range that you've been able to cover in four episodes there when you think about those topics is super important and super powerful and i can speak from experience based on the young people that I work with through what I do professionally, as well as what I do voluntarily with the charity I volunteer with and the mentoring that I do and how these are such pertinent situations and challenges for so many parents. You know, when you talk about multiracial relationships and children who are born to, multi um, to, to parents who are from different races and ethnicities, it, it is something that they have to navigate, right? Do you know what I mean? And so actually, how do we ensure that they have the esteem, the understanding, the awareness for being able to do so and how parents are the ones that can really help to lead and, and nurture that esteem effectively? Because unfortunately, it is something that in a society where our race and our ethnicity is such a significant part of our identity, we can't overlook the fact that that does come with particular challenges that people may face. And so this is such a powerful um, set of topics that you've explored. As I said, I do want to get more into your background, but I think it's only fair for our listeners to get this. So I, I can speak from experience based on being a podcast host for, for the Dope Black Dads podcast and in a couple of other spaces that as much as you might think you come in with a certain amount of knowledge and things to share, when you're interviewing other people and you're having those conversations, you walk away with learning yourself. So what are some of the things that in that series you walked away with that was like no these were some key learning points and if you had to share a couple of them with our listeners today what were a couple of key learning points from across the series that you think absolutely were gems in your opinion mm -hmm. uh, one of them really stood out to me um, was uh, my interview i did with abby hansberry um, she's a clinician and an educator and also um, a black adoptee with white parents 
And um, she also works in therapy with uh, other adoptees. And it was really interesting um, when she talked about her concept, not her concept, but the concept of centering the uh, adoptee and their experience uh, in the world rather than just centering your own experience. Like I, you know, for whatever reason, I couldn't have a child or um, th the idea that I, the parent, um, center my own experience, getting to be a parent to this child, right? Wow. Um, versus the amount of loss that comes up for a person. Like they lost their parents, the parents lost the child. Um, and when they don't bring that up, when, when adoptive parents don't bring that up with the child, um, it really doesn't center their experience. It's a big part of, of their experience as adoptees. And the idea is that just because you're not talking about those things, the, the loss and the grief that's involved um, in adoptive situations, um, doesn't mean that the child, the adoptee, isn't thinking about those things, mulling those things over. And to create space um, and openness for a child to be able to talk about those things openly um, is really, really important. And I'm not sure that a lot of people really think about it that way, this idea of Maybe your adoptee uh, does not want to celebrate their birthday. Maybe they don't want to celebrate the gotcha day, the day that the adoption became legal, because it's also the day that they like were uh, severed from their biological parent, which a lot of adoptees can have a lot of feelings about, even when they love their adoptive parents very much. Um, so it's, there's, a, there's so many complexities there. And in many, um, in the podcast that I did about multiracial children as well, um, as well as the um, transracial adoptee episode, there was both, there was conversations in both of those episodes about how so many children experience racism within their own family. Um, okay. And the idea that, you know, extended family members, aunts, uncles, um, sometimes even your parents may do and say very harmful things. And, you know, it's not like you're out there on the street and this is happening. I mean, this is happening at your dinner table, at your family gathering and and how traumatic that can be and how uncomfortable and upsetting it can be when people you love are saying things that are very upsetting to you. Um, and um, so that that was those were things that I hadn't really thought about before having those conversations. And that was really, really important. Um, I thought that that was a really important um, theme to get across to parents um, and ways to advocate for their child and to allow their child to speak up about those things and not be silent mm. about those things when they experience it. Do you think, do you think sometimes people are aware that this is something that their child is having to navigate? But, you know, you often hear things like, oh, well, we shouldn't bring it up because maybe they're just not ready yet. Like, oh, even yeah. the fact that we're trying to determine when a child is ready, like, just th there's a bit of ego that comes with that, right? It's like we're making the assumption that someone else is going to be ready. When I personally have found working with a number of young people, young people are ready a lot earlier than we might think. And actually us creating the space, not expecting them to have the conversation, but creating the space and saying, listen, I am open to having this conversation as and when you are ready is so important and not, not underestimating when they may be ready for that because we know how many parent-child relationships have been 
impacted negatively as a result of a parent maybe keeping a secret or, you know, not necessarily giving the child an opportunity to express how they're thinking and feeling. And, you know, and at times it might be because the parent is scared that that child is going to vilify them or look down on them or view them differently. But that's par for the course in some ways. And actually we shouldn't see those things as permanent because it's very easy that they can then start to view you and hold you in a higher regard further down the line but it's best that you address it now <laughs> than hold on to it and then after a while that relationship becomes so severed that it can't even be repaired so yeah it's so interesting because I think that's quite ego driven personally do you know what I mean like, yes I, I agree and there's also there's also a degree of protection I think that some parents feel like they're protecting their children from you know difficult knowledge or something like that but sometimes they're telling themselves that when they're actually just protecting themselves from having a really difficult and like emotionally fraught conversation. Yeah, and, and I appreciate it is challenging and it is difficult. So maybe what we can do as we go into this episode, we can give them some suggestions around how do they work through some of that on their own individual, uh, sorry, on their individual level so that they can develop a certain level of comfort with having those conversations. So with that being said, let's take a pause because as I said, I kept saying it. I want to really understand what's your journey been, Dr. Nanika? Like, how did you get into this work? Was it something that you were inspired to get into from a young age? And what's your journey looked like? So, for example, what did it look like in terms of study and then how you've progressed in your career up to this point? Um, I've always been interested in the dynamics between uh, parents and children, but I didn't know um, as a younger person, like in my teens and 20s, I didn't really know like how I wanted to work in that realm. Uh, there was a point where I thought I might want to be a documentary filmmaker, a photographer. Do I want to, do I want to photograph uh, parents and children? Um, I was just really very keyed into like the dynamics and how the dynamics between parents and children were so different across various parent-child dyads and um it took me a while but then i realized oh like i really want to know about this in from a psychological perspective which is when i actually went back to school and decided to get a degree in psychology went for my doctorate and when i was in my program at pace university in new york city um i was um placed in various different places uh, for internships and externships. And many of those, um, many of those placements had me working with small children. And while I really loved working with small children in therapy and teenagers, um, what I really found myself drawn toward were the, the collateral sessions that I would do every month with the parent, right? And the parent would come in, I would discuss the child, and what I ended up hearing a lot of was that things at home were staying very much the same, even though I was seeing a lot of progress within the session. And, you know, I would see the child really coming out of their shell and really processing things with me. But at home, it was just the same because home is just the same. It's the same thing. They're just going home to the same exact situation. And so that hadn't changed. So I thought to myself, um, in these conversations with the parents monthly, I thought, you know, these parents would really start talking about really deep things that were affecting them around parenting. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe this is a better way for me personally to positively influence a child's life is help a parent be a more available and skillful parent, right? Like to make the change in the child's environment itself um, to help the child develop more healthily. 
Of course, because because it's and you know I can really relate to that because I find that not only with the mentoring I do, but we do a lot of work in one of my organisations in terms of going to schools and things. And you think to yourself, I can do everything I I want in terms of trying to support a child with their own personal development, but as you said, it's the environment. If the environment they spend most of their time in, the people they spend most of their time around, are not necessarily on a similar trajectory, path, line of thinking that they are that we're trying to get them to. Then actually, not to say that the work is redundant, but the impact that can be made from a speed standpoint and a sustainability standpoint, sustaining that impact, sustaining that change, it's going to be challenged. So I Very love the fact that you picked up on that and and have chosen to really specialize in that area. And would you? It's interesting because I'm a big believer that part of what causes parents to potentially face challenges when parenting can be, I'm not saying always, but can be attributed to maybe to the way they were parented. Do you oh, think absolutely. There's a that's, that's where you learn about parenting, right? From your own experience of having been parented. Um, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to parent exactly like their parents. I mean, from what I can tell and my experience with parents is that every generation is trying to do it a little bit better than the generation before, yeah. right? So parent, all parents have positive intentions, even if they're not great at it. They they want good things for their child. It doesn't mean they know how to give that to their child, right? The, the intention is definitely there. There's very few parents that want bad things for their children, right? And so everybody wants a good thing. And really like diving into that positive intentionality that parents have. Mm. Um, I know you want good things for your child. Let's figure out how we can get that. Like, let's figure out what's standing in your way of giving your child what you know that they need. Or let's see what's standing in your way of even seeing what your child's needs are. Like maybe sometimes, you know, if if you were raised in a way where your own parent had such a difficult time meeting your needs or seeing that you had needs, then you have a difficult time seeing your own needs or meeting the needs of other people who are more vulnerable, like children, right? And so, um, I really do find that a lot of my work is really just talking about <clears throat> talking to parents about their own experience of being a young child. And when they come to me with problems, you know, my child is, um, you know, presenting with a behavior that I find really challenging and I don't know how to deal with that. It's sort of going to what would your parents have done if you were that child and you were doing this behavior? How would they have handled that? Is that something that you thought was a positive thing or a negative thing? Do you want to do that thing or do you want to do a different thing? Right. Like there's so much more choice when you're not on autopilot. Right. When you're really intentional about what you want to do and what kind of parent you want to be. And I think, you know, this last generation, last two generations, maybe are the first generations of people who are really intentionally thinking about what kind of parent they want to be. Right. Rather than just being on autopilot and just like keeping someone alive, right? I'll just yeah. feed you and clothe you and send you out there. You know what I mean? But like realizing that's an actual person with feelings and needs and, you know, all sorts of internal experiences that also need attention besides just, you know, the feeding and the clothing, you know? I see, yeah, it's not just the first rung of Maslow's, isn't it? Do you get what I'm saying? Like there's, right? there's a couple more rungs there that we could kind exactly. of go about. That's yeah. correct. That's no, that is so true. That is so true. That's powerful. And I know like within your work, you focus so, so heavily on identity and I guess specific, not, I say specifically, I know probably expands beyond this, but with a heavy focus on racial identity as part of that, which I think is so interesting because 
our identity is something that we cannot escape. And I'd like to think that it's something that as we go on the journey of life, we start to take pride in. And I appreciate everybody's at different points within that journey of taking pride in their identity because your personal experiences, your lived experiences are all going to play a part. And also, of course, the societal things like, you know, the propaganda and things that are portrayed in society about people who are from your demographic slash community is going to impact whether you do have pride in your identity. But because of the fact that identity is something that we walk everywhere with, like we, we can't escape, you know, the identity we have, be that our ethnicity, be that our gender, be that our um, class status even, be that our migrant status, disability status, sexuality, whatever. It's all part and parcel of who we are. The challenge though is that some aspects of identity, and this is just me speaking in my personal opinion here, some aspects of identity people find it quite easy and are comfortable talking about. I find that if there is one aspect of identity that on a societal level, people still don't really feel comfortable talking about, it is definitely race. And so I really commend the work that you're doing. So what would you say then is helpful for parents when it comes to being able to raise a child with a healthy racial identity? Mm-hmm. I think it's, first of all, acknowledging race. Because as, as you said that, I'm thinking to myself, <clears throat> most white people don't even think that they have a race. Like they think that race is other people's thing, right? Yeah. Like they, they, that doesn't, they're not under that umbrella, but they are, they are. And, um, and it's interesting, I have all kinds of people in my practice um, and I have lots of white people in my practice, white parents, white kids, um, who are now just starting to think about that. How do I, like, what, what messages do I send my child about whiteness? What, what message do I send about other racial backgrounds? Um, and it's really a topic now that's on the table, you know, that is available to be spoken about. It's not so invisible anymore. And, and that's a really great thing because there is no, we don't really have a rubric for it. We don't know what to do with like, it's there, it's affecting us all, but what do we do about it? How do we talk about it without everyone getting in like heated, conflictual, like like conversations, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I really encourage parents to be really open and just really talking about it, even though they don't, they may not know themselves, the parents, it's like we can learn together. You know, you, I don't, you know, they may ask, a child may ask you a question about any topic and you may not have the answer, but that's okay. It's okay if you don't have every, every single answer. You can say, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Why don't we figure that out together? Why don't we find that answer together? You know, and so it doesn't have to be a taboo thing. It can be something you learn alongside your child as well. Um, and I think that just believing your child and their experiences that they have if a child comes home and says, you know, I experienced X, Y, or Z as a microaggression, they don't need to hear, mm, you, you maybe you're just taking that wrong. Like, no, that's no. not what they need to hear. They need, <laughs> to he- they need to be validated in their experience. Whatever the person's intentionality was for that microaggression, what, what really matters is the impact it had on your child. And that's what you really need to validate. And I think that's a really huge part of a healthy racial identity is being believed about your experiences as, uh, you know, whatever your race happens to be. You know what? This is so timely because I was running an anti-racism training yesterday and literally that is what a a large bulk of the session we were talking about, intention versus impact. And Mm -hmm. your intentions might be as pure as you might think, but the truth of the matter is when it comes to being able to support someone's 
on there. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Journey of being able to embrace and hopefully develop pride in their identity, overcome the challenges that come with maybe having felt oppressed. Impact is the most important thing. So regardless of what your intentions were, us understanding the impact that our own actions and the actions of others are having is actually so, so important and probably is what tips the scales even more than just the intentionality. So this is this is super interesting. And I think when you was talking about being able to have honest and healthy discussions, what does that look like? Is there certain language that we should use or not use? Like, are there things that we need to be considering as it relates to the environment we create in order to have those conversations? Is it about developing certain habits? Like what does that look like for a family potentially, especially a multiracial one, in order mm-hmm. to have those healthy and honest discussions? I think it's pointing it out, right? Not acting like race is invisible or that it's not affecting your family or uh, your family externally or internally. Um, and pointing things out that you notice, you know, I. I, I know as black people, as a black person, I know when I walk into a room and there's no other black people there, or if yeah. there's only white people there, I notice it immediately. Like, huh, there's not any any person of color here. And it also and always gives me something to think about. What do I think about this group of people that there are no black, that not just black people, I'm saying that because that's me, but people of color in general, right? That That this group of white people just didn't think it was important to have any person here except for just themselves, right? Um, and that's, and that's of course, me making an assumption. I don't know what their ideas are, but that's what I think. That's what comes to my mind, right? And I really do suggest that parents say those kinds of things out loud as like, a, as like something to bat around, an idea to bat around, right? Hey, I'm noticing that there's only white people here. What do you think about that? Like, what do you, ima- how do you, why do you imagine that is, right? Like, I don't know the answer. Your child won't know the answer, but it's something that you could just discuss, brainstorm around, you know, and those having those kinds of conversations, that's what keeps the door open for any kind of conversation about race. Like we can just talk about it. We don't have to pretend we don't see what's right in front of us, you Mm -hmm. know? And I think that that's really important. 
it's, it's normalizing that kind of dialogue, isn't it? Normalizing that kind of discourse and not letting it be something that only has to happen in and amongst, you know, spaces that might, for example, seem to have or seem to be more academic for argument's sake or seem to be spaces where people feel they actually have the answers to these particular questions. No, actually, let's just normalize having the conversation because um, that's really empowering. Like, think about how much agency that gives to a child who's like, yeah, well, you know what, if my parents have been willing to have that kind of dialogue with me, I'm not going to feel any way about having that dialogue in other spaces. Imagine us, as you were saying before, which I think was such brilliant advice, let's work it out together. Imagine you've got so used to just working it out with your parent. When you're in other spaces now, you're going to feel comfortable like, well, let's work it out. Do you know what I mean? You're not going to shy away from it because you've built that as a muscle, you've built that as a habit. That's huge. That is huge. So I wanted to talk a bit about colorism as well, because I know that that's something that obviously you have to consider within your work. And obviously it's a, it's a, it's a situation, I like to call it, that well it's interesting because that probably goes against something that i said yesterday in my training i was saying that anything that ends in the suffix ism is technically a system but then i guess you could argue colorism is a system too but anyway yeah it's a situation slash system that does exist and i can and not even imagine but i know obviously it will impact the way people parent so what role does colorism play in parents seeking to raise children that have a healthy understanding of identity well it 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 can come at all in all different ways. Colorism, you know, for people who don't really know what that is, it was something in the early 20th century after um, enslavement was no no longer legal. Um, it was sort of a, a racial caste system um, that developed, and then segregation developed after that. This idea that if you have only even only one black ancestor, one drop um, yeah. of black blood, you are you are considered a, to be a black person, even if um, outwardly presenting, you might present to the world as white, right? Um, and and this was really just to maintain white supremacy, so that we're just going to really make sure that nobody who has any black ancestor can have anything, right? Like, you can't have land, you can't vote, you can't do all of these things. So we hold all of these things for ourselves by saying, if you have just one black ancestor, that means that you are that you are of low, lower status, right? Um, and this continues to play out. I think of colorism as intergenerational trauma because it really yeah. does play out um, within communities of color. Um, the idea is that the lighter your skin is, the, the more proximity you have to whiteness and therefore you are somehow on a higher, you are of a higher status somehow. Mm. And Many, uh, I'm just going to speak for um, for black people right now. Um, lots of black people have been raised, depending on their own skin tone, um, to feel that they are um, more or less valuable, right, to the world, to their families, to other people, to the people that they are, let's say, romantically attracted to, um, that depending on my skin color, I have more and less value. Um, the darker my skin is, the less value I have. Um, and that is really such um, a horrible thing to internalize. But sadly, so many communities of color perpetuate this notion and they perpetuate this trauma on future generations. Um, I feel really uh, fortunate myself um, that I, my family wasn't one of those families, but I know many, many people 
um, who did grow up with that as being so much more foundational um, in how they grew up. Um, therefore, they feel, and it could be a light-skinned person or a dark-skinned person who feels like they were negatively treated because of that. You know, perhaps dark-skinned people treated a light-skinned person like they thought they were better than them. So they excluded them sort of um, like in an anticipatory way. Or the people who have dark skin were, you know, lots of mean things were said about them, even by their own family members. Um, you know, that, that a parent might treat a child with lighter skin better than a child with darker skin. It's really, there's so much trauma that comes from that. And I see that in my practice a lot with the adults, with the adults, um, the parents who are coming in, have that as the, a part of their own story. Um, and it's really, it's really serious. And so I think it's really important to counter those messages right away. Um, when you hear your child, because people can get these messages from TV when you, when all the people on TV are light skinned black people, then yeah. it's like, oh, like I'm not seeing any dark skinned black people, so they must not be as good. No, that's not true. Like yeah. these, are, these are all things to, to counter, right? And you can point it out again. You can just shout it out, right? Oh, I'm noticing that all the black women in this show are all light skinned black people. I wonder why there are no dark skinned black people in this show. What do you think? Right. Like these are things that you can bring up. Right. And you don't have to act like, again, like you're not seeing something that's right in front of you. And even down to the personality traits that are supposedly attributed to someone based on their color. So when we talk about colorism, you're talking about, you know, those different shades of black. Right. And the fact that, you know, it's so easy through propaganda and stereotyping for people who are of a lighter shade to be expected to have a certain type of personality, attitude, certain characteristics and traits. They're safer, they're safer, right? Like they're they're not a dangerous person, right? Like the darker you your go. skin is the more dangerous and more um, uh, like unwanted, somebody, something, somebody you don't want, right? And, and that's so ridiculous as if somehow the, the shade of your skin somehow says something about who you are as a person, it's ridiculous. But that stuff is deep rooted, isn't it? Because when you go into how race was constructed, because as we know, you know, race is a social construct, you know, prior, prior just, to the 1400s, this didn't exist. <laughs> like, I mean, that's the thing. So often when, when I find myself in a conflict about race with anyone, it's just like somebody made something up hundreds of years ago and this is what's happening now, that both of us have to deal with this craziness, which is not even real. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like... It's just it's so upsetting sometimes when I think about all of it. It's all trauma, you know? A hundred percent. And it's interesting that you mentioned that around, you know, like the the early 20th century, because I, I know, like, for example, in the UK, and I know we've got listeners on both sides of the Atlantic here, but in the UK specifically, there were reports, you know, I'm referencing something called the Fletcher Report that came out in 1930 that made absolute ripples across UK society as it relates to literally it classified the idea of a child that is multiracial and back then they were using the term half caste deeming that as the biggest issue in uk society at the time like literally the biggest not the fact that 10 years ago you were in a war or 12 years ago specifically not the fact that 12 years ago you were in a war the country needs rebuilding not the fact that there's other things that need to be dealt with you know at this at this time i'm sure there's recessions going on i know in the states around this time there's the great depression like so i'm surely from an economic standpoint there's some more important things but no this report is suggesting 
half-caste children is the biggest problem in this country. So my, I always say to people, even though that sounds like it's a long time ago, it's not. Because someone's grandparent was alive then and they might have passed that into their parents' generation and then into the generation after that. So the, those ideologies and perspectives still exist in our society. So that's going to seep into the way people parent, seep into the way children navigate the world. So we have to be aware of that. Do you know what I mean? It's so important. It's so important. It's so important. It's, it's race is affecting our experience all the time. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Now I want to come back to something that you said earlier, because you said that it's important for us to validate our child's lived experience. And I think you said it in such a fantastic way in terms of actually just helping them to, well, sorry, for us to appreciate that whatever it is they said they've experienced is for us to accept. But what else should we be considering as it relates to being able to really validate our child's lived experience, especially if they might be a multiracial child that's navigating, you know, racial identity? Right. Um, keep In keeping with this sort of one drop rule situation, many multiracial children are pressured to choose just one side of themselves, um, especially mm. if one side of themselves is black, right? And that is the perpetuation of the one drop rule, right? And so adults, uh, it's not always parents, it could be other adults in your family, extended family, who are telling you, well, you're black, right? And you, the child, may not actually identify as being black in terms of being a monoracial black person, right? A black person who only has, who is, whose both, both parents are black, right? Um, that's how we would call that monoracial. Someone who's multiracial may, by, perhaps if I'm a child who is black and something else, I might find that, well, if you're calling me a black person, if you're saying that I must claim that, then I have to like not claim like my Mexican heritage or not claim my German heritage or, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't make any sense. I'm more than just one thing. I, I you know, especially if you're close with both, side of, both sides of your family, you may be, you know, sort of bicultural and really feel like a part of both, both cultures. And, um, and so one of the things that is very important for um, parents of multiracial children is to allow them to claim all of themselves and not relegate them to only being one thing. And oh. they're allowed to be, they, they get to define who they are. Definitely. And so, so the other thing, there was a couple of other things that you mentioned in terms of the topics that you had covered in your mini series recently. And, and I wanted to just kind of like reflect on a couple of those as we bring this to a close. And one was around when you mentioned um, the talk. So preparing your child for a racist world. Like, tell us a bit more about that. Tell us a bit more about that. And I'm also making a very, very big, like, podcast error of allowing my alarm to go off in the background. So as you answer this, I'm going to go and turn off this alarm. Do you get what I'm saying? But, um, yeah, well, tell us more about this talk, preparing our children for a racist world. Like, what does that talk yeah, look like? Yeah, the talk. It's it's a sad conversation that many, um, many black parents and probably other, you know, uh, parents of color um, have to prepare their child for the racism that they will experience in the world. Um, part of that comes down to <clears throat> telling your black child who maybe just started driving, like, this is what happens. This is what you need to do if the police pull you over because mm -hmm. police are afraid of black people and may shoot you for no reason. And so th this is how you need to act to appear non-threatening 
it's so sad that you have to tell your child who you know is no threat to anybody, yeah. but, that you, but that you know other people will see as a threat. And so this is how you have to behave in order to stay safe, right? And so the talk is about these are the things you can do to stay safe. These are the ways that you need to prepare your mind for people saying ignorant things, doing ignorant things, doing hurtful, harmful things potentially, and also letting them know you can come to me. Like if this is something that happens to you, you can talk to me about it. It probably will happen. And also trying to inoculate them against it. If this does happen to you, you need to know that it's not about you and it's not true about you, right? And these are ways that parents try to sort of almost immunize their child of color against racism. And so that when they experience it, they don't internalize it. They, re they were prepared for it, they know it's gonna be there and they know it's not about them. That is so important, yeah, because if we're being honest, and I know that I don't know if maybe you're finding it's a bit more progressive in the States, but I still think here there is definitely not enough of an appreciation about the fact that the experience one has when it comes to racism and being on and oppressed as a result of their race and ethnicity, that's a mental health issue. Do you get what I'm saying? Absolutely. But but, but it's not acknowledged in that way in our society. And so That's correct. It's not in the like you know, the diagnostic book right like racism is not in there which is obviously a huge trauma oh massive and a weathering you know it weathers a person right it wears a person down over time without a doubt without a doubt and so what you're talking about there in terms of having that talk having that conversation it's a preventative measure it in theory you know it helps to be able to hopefully help that child to not feel so impacted by the racially oppressive world that they're then going to be living in. So that's huge. So the bit I wanted to finish on was just because I think it's such a pertinent topic that personally, maybe it's just because of the spheres that I operate in. I haven't necessarily been exposed to enough dialogue, suggestions, advice, discourse around, but you said you did the, the session of, oh, sorry, you did the um, episode that was around raising children with autism. Do you know what I mean? And so, yeah, is there anything in particular that you'd like to share or recommend as it results to that topic? Well, it's interesting because um, I just was uh, putting together an episode about autism in girls in particular and the ways in which they go underdiagnosed because it, autism can present much more differently um, in girls than in boys. And also, there, all the research in autism has basically been done on white boys. Um, you know, like the hugest, the the most um, the most often used assessments for assessing for autism um, were normed on um, seventy seven percent white male people and and the rest other people, right? Like so, it's very highly skewed toward white male people, right? Right, right, white male people, and so they're using this assessment. And if I don't see these traits in you, then I decide you don't have autism, but you may, but you're using a checklist that's not for this person. And black people are very um, understudied, underassessed, underdiagnosed um, for autism in particular. And, um, and, it, and as such, it's very hard to, uh, it's, it's hard for clinicians to know what to look for. And in, um, in a child of color, often, especially girls, black females, um, 
are often the the traits of autism are often uh, judged to be uh, severely bad behavior, right? It's not like I think you have autism. I think that you need to go to into the criminal justice system, right? Like they're just automatically assumed to be uh, like negative things are assumed. Um, parents who report that they have uh, parents of color who report at age 12 months, you know, I'm seeing something different with my child, something is off, um, are often dismissed by providers. Nah, that's not possible. You're not a white male, like your child's not a white male, they can't have autism. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like this idea that it, like it doesn't even happen in someone yeah. else. And so it's really, really challenging. And we talked about that in the episode, challenging to get your child a diagnosis and to get your child care um, as, a, as a black person. Um, as a person of color, it's not always easy to find providers that will listen to you and, mm. um, and take you seriously. Um, and a lot of the symptoms, especially for girls, uh, all girls of all the kinds, of all backgrounds, um, autism looks a little different. Girls are socialized differently. And so a lot of girls are socialized to behave in, to like pretend to look, to look uh, neurotypical. And while they are neurodivergent and boys are not socialized as much in that way, so they stand out a little bit more. But mm. autism in girls can look more subtle, especially if there aren't any um, intellectual disabilities. Um, a typical, like someone with um, a typical, you know, a normal intelligence level who also has autism is much more likely, um, if they are a girl, to be, uh, to fly under the radar. Uh, they don't, they don't look like what people are thinking autism looks like. So they go undiagnosed and most uh, black women are not diagnosed until they're adults. And so they did not get any kind of accommodations their whole lives. Imagine. This is so deep. So I guess for parents who might be interested to understand whether their child is neurodivergent, you know, for example, maybe does have some form of autism. And, you know, you're talking about the fact that it can be hard potentially to find the correct providers. Is that a case of them maybe seeking to find network spaces where they're amongst other parents from let's say the black community who have been able to find reliable providers yeah. and have been able to get their in order to find those or unless there is a particular space where you direct them to um i mean i would i i would do absolutely that if i suspected that my child had autism i would try to find another black parent in my community um who is getting services for their child how did they do that get advice from them um, there's forums, obviously, online that you can go on. There's um, an organization called Autism in Black, which I love. And they really um, talk a lot about advocating for your child, raising an autistic child, an autistic black child. It's really, really a wonderful organization that people can check out. This is amazing. This is amazing. Well, listen, Dr. Nanika, you know I could talk to you all day. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> like, I genuinely have so many more things, but I appreciate that. Not only is your time very valuable, but we, we keep the episodes to a certain length so that we don't hopefully lose people. But I am going to put pressure on the team to see if we can do this again another day. And I'm going to selfishly hope that it's me that can host the conversation <laughs> again, because I have genuinely, genuinely enjoyed this and got so much from it. So as we close, just let people know, where can they find you? Like, of course, you know, tell them about your podcast again, but also yes. where else can they find you and connect and really ensure yeah. that they're benefiting from all the great work you're doing? Um, you can find me at www.brooklynparenttherapy.com. 
and also uh, on Instagram at BK Parents. And if you go to either one of those places, you'll find all the information for the podcast and other things that I'm doing. And if you live in New York State, you can also work with me in person. There you go. There you go. So if you're in the New York area, please do get in touch with Dr. Nanika. Well, thank you so much again. I genuinely appreciate it. This has been another episode of the Dope Black Dads podcast, and we will catch you on the next one. Dope Black Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.